How are we doing? Are we all back in? If you're not in here, let me know. Oh, we're all back. Good. Good. <sighs> right. Do we, have, do we have any slides? That's a, is that a no? Brilliant. We're old school today. Anyone got a Bible with them? Because I need one. <laughs> right. Before we start then, I'll just let you know, we'll be looking at John 17. That's where I've been the last couple of times I've been up, and that's where I'm, I'm still stuck. That's where God's keeping me, I think. So if you can open your Bible, and if we can get to John 17 and just keep it at that page, maybe stuff will appear behind me, maybe it won't, but we'll not worry about it because we know where we're going. Okay. Right. We've been looking at John 17. It's okay, Andrew, I was joking. I've got, I've got it written down. Thank you. <laughs> I did take a note of my own <laughs> scripture, but thank you, Andrew. You're a legend. <laughs> right. There, there's some up here, but there might not be. Okay. We discussed before, this is the, the priestly prayer of Jesus, and we discussed how it divides into three parts. Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for the disciples, and finally, in the last part, his prayer is for those who will believe through their message. That's us. And one of the most encouraging things as a Christian is to be prayed for by someone else. Not only be prayed for, but be prayed with. And it's pretty hard for division to exist in a church, I think, when people are praying together. So, however, it's one thing to pray for one another. It's quite another thing to realize that we have Jesus interceding on our behalf. Jesus prays for you. And not just in the prayer in John 17... But he is the one who lives and fixes IT stuff as well, as I can see behind me in the great. That's the title for today. Maybe we'll just move on to the next one. It's the verse. Can we do that? Can we move to the next slide? Brilliant. Okay. This is the meat for today. It's one thing to realize that Jesus prays for us as he does here in John 17. But he's the one who even now lives to make intercession for us, the Bible tells us. He's the one who was raised and sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, as we can read in Romans. Jesus prays for you. Jesus does. Jesus prays for you. And in the first part, when I was looking at this, this is the third part in this series. In the first part, we looked at mainly the first aspect of the prayer it was from verse 20 onwards, unity. And that was the last section, love, glory, unity. Under the heading, glory, glory, man, united. Okay, the key point for me at that time was that unity is not something that we can achieve by our own efforts. That was the key thing that, that I learned from this really. Unity is not something that we achieve by our own efforts. Our unity emerges as a result of us remaining in Jesus by being focused on him. I quoted Tozer's thought in the pursuit of God. Has it ever occurred to you that a hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? In other words, a hundred worshippers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, are nearer in heart to one another than they could ever be if they were to strive for closer fellowship. We remain in Jesus. We focus on Him. 
In the second part, the last time I spoke, we spent time, some time in the middle part of the prayer. And that's where Jesus prays for the disciples, and in particular for their and our protection and sanctification. He'll support us evermore as we walk out our life of faith and we remain in Him. I'll say the phrase remain in Him a few times this morning. It's probably the main point I'm trying to make. You might pick up on that. As I said the last time, it's very important that we recognize in the passage that this passage in John 17 is a prayer. Jesus is asking the Father to accomplish all these things. He's asking His Father to make us one in heart and mind. And this is good news because we can't protect and sanctify ourselves. We can't make ourselves one and force unity amongst ourselves. And we don't have to. I'm repeating myself again for emphasis, but Jesus is praying for you. He's supporting us. He's providing for us. We remain in Him. Even now, even now, He was raised and He sits at the right hand of God and He intercedes for us. So in Glory, Glory, Man United, part one, we focused on unity. In Glory, Glory, Man United, part two, we subtitled it, He'll support you evermore. In Glory, Glory, Man United, part three, which is where we're at today, because there's three parts to the prayer. We'll look at the first five verses, and only the first five, which I believe are still behind me on the screen. Although we might not really get much past the first verse, in honesty, but we'll see how it goes. Perhaps we should shorten the title of this talk this morning just to glory, glory. Might be more appropriate. Are we ready? Are we ready to go? Okay, let's, let's read this together. In your heads, you don't have to say it out loud. I'll read it out loud. You just follow. Verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Glory, glory. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glory, glory. Keep your mind on these verses because I'm going to dive off in a different direction for a few moments. I promise I'll come back. But I think I've probably said it before. Often the subject matter for a sermon or a talk, for me anyway, it comes from a question. And often it, the question comes from a situation or a problem or something that I'm trying to work through myself. And as I look around this morning, I'm aware that we're many different people here. And we're at various stages of life. And we're experiencing the various challenges and joys which come at us sometimes at an overwhelming speed. There are times when we're holding on tightly. There are other times when we just want to get off. And yet this question's been hovering above me 
for a few weeks now. So we're ready for the question. Have we got the next slide? Are you living or existing? It's an important question. Are you living or existing? Because there's a difference between the two. And to tell you the truth, I'm probably a little bit scared of what the answer might be. Are you living or existing? I read an article by a pastor called Scott Cox and recently, and it helped me with this question. And not surprisingly, it led to further questions. And we'll get to them this morning. Actually, actually no, we'll not call them questions. We'll call them challenges if we take them in that kind of positive frame of mind. It led to other challenges, things that we can conquer. Okay, but so here's a thought, here's a thought. What if the vast majority of people on earth today were just existing? They're waking up in the morning, going to work or school, attending to the to-do list, keeping the wheel spinning. And they're going about their business, but they have no real sense of purpose in their lives. Their happiness and fulfillment and life depends largely on circumstances or the occasional achievement. And if they ever stopped and were completely honest with themselves, they might admit that inside they're empty. That is existing. And when I think about it, sometimes that has been me just existing. The good news this morning is that Jesus Christ came that we might have life and it would be abundant. Now that sounds like good news to me. Is that good news to anyone else? Jesus came that we would have life and it would be abundant life. And if we're going to experience this kind of real life, we must look to Jesus, the source of real life. Is anyone with me on that? Yes? Right. In John 17, Jesus is at the end of his life, and he's facing the cross. And the first verse begins, he begins to look to God as he faces his hour of darkness. And in the text, we can start to see how Jesus lived and really lived. Verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked to heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. I'll read it again. Listen to the words. Listen to, listen to what Jesus says. Listen to what he does. He looked heavenward and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your son may glorify you. And if you're following in your Bible, keep it on that page, keep your finger at that spot, and we'll continue on. So, okay, the question, the question, are you living or existing? The answer to that, I think, can be found in three further questions, all of which are going to delve back into that verse. So the first question, have we got the next slide? Because it'll make it easier to follow. <laughs> You'll see where I'm going now. First question, are you living 
with a dependence on the Father. As Jesus entered his hour of trial, the Bible said he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father. As Jesus entered his hour of trial, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father. He didn't look outward to his circumstances to try and figure a way out of it. He didn't look inward for answers, even though he was the Son of God. He looked upward to heaven, to the one that he knew and knew as his Father. Jesus lived with complete dependence, not on his own person, not on his own humanity, but complete trust and dependence on the Father. We can go back to John 5, in verse 30, he says, I can of myself do nothing. Every person Jesus ever healed while he was on earth, every sermon he ever preached, every temptation that he overcame, he did it by trusting, not in who, who he was, but by depending on the Father for strength, for guidance, on every word, everything. He depended on his Father. If Jesus, who was God's Son, could do nothing of himself, how much more can we ourselves do nothing in and of ourselves? The problem with many Christians today in churches, actually, no, no. The, start again. The problem with me is that I am depending solely on my own natural abilities, on my own reasoning abilities, on my own talents, on my education, on my financial resources to live my life and somehow also accomplish God's work. That's the problem. That's what I'm doing. Often we of ourselves are doing nothing. We are existing, by and large, completely in the natural but when we live with this dependence on God that Jesus lived with, the natural begins to give way to the supernatural and God begins to work. How many times in the Bible, every time in fact, it says Jesus lifted his eyes. In some place it says look towards heaven. But one time, one time he lifted his eyes to God and he stuck his, his fingers in the ears of a deaf man who regained his hearing. Another time, he lifted his eyes and put his dependence on God and thanked God and called Lazarus out of the grave. Another time, he lifted his eyes to God and he gave thanks. And he took two small fishes and five loaves and fed thousands of people. The life that is lived in dependence upon God experiences the supernatural power of God. And yet, can you say this about your life? Can I see this in mine? I'm not asking if you've healed anyone lately or turned water into wine. I'm asking if you can look at your life and say, God gave me victory over that situation. God gave me victory over that temptation. Only God could have done this. God had his hand upon me and touched the lives of others. And I know, I know it was God that did it. Can we say this? about our family? Can we say this about our community? Can we say this about our church? Only God could have done this. And maybe I think I'm learning again, slowly and painfully, that we forfeit God's power when we substitute dependence on Him 
with dependence on ourselves or on other people or on other resources. I'm starting to see again that I need to take my eyes off the natural. I'm, I'm starting to see that again. When I look at my life, I can't speak for anyone else in here, but I know, I know that I need to take my eyes off the natural, off that which I can see, and lift eyes of faith to heaven. Jesus lived with a dependence upon the Father. The question is, do you? Do I? And that leads to the next question. Do you live with a sense of divine destiny? Now that's an interesting one. Just stop for a minute and think. Do I live with a sense of divine destiny? Ah, who do you think you are? I mean, that's, that's the, the reaction. Many of us in here are Scottish, and that's pretty much how we react to these sorts of questions. Do you live with destiny? You, divine? Yeah. But we talk to ourselves like that as well. We don't just bring everyone else down. We bring ourselves down too. I mean, we don't have favorites when it comes to tearing folk down. But do I live with a sense of divine destiny? Firstly, you're allowed to. Can I just get that out there? You're allowed to live with a sense of divine destiny. Because God's called you for a purpose. God chose you. And he's got something that only you can do. He's got a life that only you can lead. God's called you. The very fact that you're here tells me that. Should tell you that too. So you're allowed to live with a sense of divine destiny. Jesus said, the hour has come. Now that's an interesting phrase that Jesus uses in a few different places. At the beginning of his ministry, at a wedding feast, and his mother wanted him to show himself as the Messiah. And he said, my hour has not yet come. On another occasion, his brothers urged him at the Feast of Tabernacles to, to reveal himself. If he thought he was the Messiah, go and, go and show the people, you're the Messiah. My time has not yet come. So what was Jesus' time, his hour? It was his hour to be glorified and to glorify God. What Mary and the brothers didn't know was that Jesus would be glorified and would glorify God, glory, glory, through a bloody cross and a resurrection. That was his hour. That was his destiny. He had a sense of purpose, of destiny, of everything that he did and everything that he said led up to that moment, that hour. And now, in the verses we just read, that hour has come. Jesus' life was lived in one direction with purpose and a sense of divine destiny. It's a miserable thing to live aimlessly and without purpose, drifting, existing. And I know I've spoken about this before, but I believe that God wants all of us to live with a sense of divine destiny. Why are you here? Why are you a part of this church? You're not an accident. God has a purpose for you today in his body. He wants to use you. He's given you a gift, a divine ability to carry out the purpose that he'd always planned for your life. Don't hide. Don't hide out of false modesty. Don't hide out of fear. But conversely, 
Don't dismiss God's plan because it doesn't suit your ego. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. God knows and God sees and God loves you. Okay. Each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit, Scripture tells us. Honestly ask God to show you what his purpose for you is in the body of Christ, how he's gifted you, and he'll be faithful to reveal it. It might require you to step out. It might require you to try something that you haven't done or you've always deep down buried that you were going to do sometime, but now's the time. It might cause you to risk failure, but God will be faithful. He will show you. I also suspect that God's probably more interested in revealing my purpose to me than I am in knowing and acting on it. I mean, I've got to be honest. I like to get the, the baffies on and watch the telly and just just have an easier existence. I'm getting a nod from Jill there. But don't avoid it. Don't dismiss it. God's calling you. Listen to that voice. The point is this, I suppose. Jesus lived with a sense of divine destiny. The question is, do you? And that leads me to the third question. Are you living with a desire to glorify God? As he faced the cross, Jesus prayed, glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. Jesus' overarching desire in life and in death was to glorify the Father. And understand that the word glory has two primary meanings that are kind of interrelated, kind of connected. The first one is glory refers to a manifestation, a making real, a making present of God's presence. Glory refers to a manifestation of God's presence. The second is it means to give praise and honor, to glorify God, to give Him honor, to lift up His name. Jesus experienced both. In his life, he revealed the presence of God. He was the image of the unseen God. When people saw him, they saw the Father. But his desire was that through the glory that God gave him, he would use it to bring praise and honor to the Father. Even in death, especially in death, he sought the glory of the Father. Now, dare we say, I only ask that God's will be done and no matter what happens, that he be glorified. Really? Dare we? Dare we say that? That's a profound statement. Because you can't make a statement like that without complete dependence on God, trust, or a sense of divine destiny. Sounds very noble, thy will be done. But do we really mean it in our lives? We have to we have to depend upon the Father and we have to have his perspective first before we can come to that kind of statement. The overriding desire to glorify God can be costly, but it is very liberating. It brings freedom. The desire to glorify God is the opposite of selfishness. And the selfish life is a miserable life, I've discovered, time and again, things won't always go our way. 
circumstances of life will change. People don't always treat us the way that we should be treated. And all of this will make us miserable if we're living for self. But when we can honestly say, Lord, no matter what happens to me, whether I live or die, whether I'm treated fairly or unfairly, whether I endure affliction or comfort, Lord, you be glorified in it. When this is our desire, we're free of selfishness. And this is what Jesus means when he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And it's all in that relationship when we remain in him, when we remain in him, when we're trusting him, when we're glorifying him, when he's our first desire. It all comes out of that. I wonder actually if the band could get ready to come up and if it's at all possible, could we sing that song alive again? Because that's really what we're about here. It's about coming alive. Are we living or existing? We're coming alive again this morning. We're coming alive, people. We're coming alive, church. That's who we're becoming. We're coming alive. Anyone else coming alive? Yes, we're coming alive again. Doesn't matter what happened before. Doesn't matter what happened this morning. We're coming alive again. And we are. And no one's going to stop us. So in conclusion, are you living or exist are you existing? Are you living or are you existing? Are you living with a dependence on the Father? Are you living with a sense of destiny? Are you living with a desire to glorify God? I said a few weeks back that I'd encourage you to read through the whole prayer in John 17. And read it through again in your own time. And take your time as well. Listen to the Holy Spirit as He reveals Jesus to you again through the Scripture. Come alive again. He'll quicken things to you. He'll bring things to you that I've merely just skimmed over. And I would also encourage you, like I did before, to go back a few chapters. Start round about John 14 probably. And breathe in the whole context of what Jesus is saying. Because I know from the few conversations I've had with people that some of you have done exactly this and you've made your own personal discoveries while reading through. Because it's not my words, it's Jesus' words. When you go back to about John 14 and read it through, most of the words in my Bible are in red, and that means that they're spoken by Jesus. So that means that they're going to bring you life. They're going to make you alive again. It's words of life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He is the voice that we all need to be listening to, and He is the person that we just need to hang around with every day. Amen. Yes. He is alive, and we are made alive in Him. Now, I'm greatly encouraged that people are doing this, and I can only bring so much in 30 minutes, and I will finish in a moment. So, glory, glory. After Jesus said this, He looked towards heaven, and He prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that Your Son may glorify You. Glory, glory. And I believe that we want to live lives that glorify God. We want to complete the race before us, to put Him first in our lives. We want to see, we want Him to be seen in us and in our lives, and we want Him to receive all the glory for this and all the honor and all the praise. And I understand that glory is also the manifest presence of God. And if we're to truly glorify God in our lives, we must live out our lives in an awareness of His presence remaining in Him.
This is where we come truly alive. This is the difference between existing and living. The difference between living and existing is found in God's glory. Jesus says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, who you have sent. This is eternal life, to know him. Earlier in John 15, Jesus commands us to remain in him. Then we will bear much fruit. Our lives will have purpose. Our lives will be enriched. Remain in him. And this will be to the Father's glory. It's no more complicated than this, folks. Remain in him. Glory, glory. Man united with Christ forever. Amen. And thanks for listening.